those children who are following their bulletins, their children's bulletins, the word you want to look for, again, is the word disciple or Christian. Uh, so you can mark how many times I say those two words, you will be busy um, if you follow that. It's always uh, interesting when you go to another country uh, where they may not get many visitors uh, from uh, foreigners uh, to hear what they think you are. Um, you know, in their mind of what American looks like, it's usually something they see on TV, which is a little scary, to be honest with you, uh, depending on what show they watch of what uh, an American is. And so uh, one of the things that I find interesting is just walking in the streets and people coming up trying to talk to you and, and trying to guess your nationality. Um, I had one uh, lady ask me if my parents were uh, interracial um, because in my, their view, I did not look like an American. Uh, I had a lot of joy in explaining that to my parents and asking them about that. Um, but you know, they just happened to be with uh, a couple of blonde-haired, blue-eyed folks, and they, and they knew they were Americans, but trying to figure out who I was. Or sometimes they'll say Spaniard or any, any interesting number of things that might come up of what they think you are. And so what is the characteristic of an American? Uh, you find that when you go across uh, the, the seas uh, in other countries, they have a varied view of what an American's supposed to look like. And you kind of come across that as you, as you meet them. Uh, and so as we read uh, today in Acts 18, uh, the question we want to ask is, what are some characteristics of disciples? Uh, what do they look like? How do they behave? What are some of their characteristics uh, as they walk through and travel through life? And see, so we're going to see an example of uh, several, not just Paul, but uh, a couple that God uses and uh, another young man that God uses. And, and we're going to see these certain characteristics uh, in the book of Acts as they are traveling around uh, and spreading the gospel, and a movement has begun uh, in earnest. It's already hit Rome uh, at this point. This is around 50 to 52 A.D. Uh, we know this because the Acts 18 gives very specific dating of who, uh, which one is a ruler uh, in the city of Corinth, and we know that this man happened to be here between 50 and 52. So we can date the time uh, and place of when this is, is happening, and so we know things are happening in Rome already. Uh, as far as the Christian movement, the movement of followers of Jesus. And so we're going to just read this, and we're gonna, we looked at this last week, in light of a disciple before the court for a community. And we looked at especially with what uh, was happening in our own uh, time, uh, with court cases being done, and what it, is, what it is to be before human authorities, when human authorities may or may not be friendly uh, to you as a disciple. <laughs> well, we're going to look at the same text and look at some of the other passages that talk about their behavior of disciples. And uh, I, I don't want this to be a, a do better or be better and this is what you must do. But I want us to look at this and see why it is that they're able to do this. Uh, so that it helps us to take on some of these same commitments uh, of our worship of the Lord as we walk in this community in Nightdale, East Raleigh, uh, and how God may use us. Uh, and so, in honor of this being God's Word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this. We're going to begin uh, with Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, 
native Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And if you will uh, go down to verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with them Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the, great, that the Christ was Jesus. You may be seated. So as we look through this chapter, I, the question we're asking ourselves is, what does a disciple do? How do they behave? What are their characteristics as they are going from place to place, looking at these individuals being mentioned? Uh, and so uh, we find Paul, you know, we, we looked at Corinth a little bit last week. Corinth uh, is a major city uh, in Rome. In fact, it's the second largest city in Rome. Uh, it's a fairly new city at the time. Uh, so in great contrast to Athens, about 50 miles away, where he just came from, Athens being an ancient city even in Paul's time, this city at this point had been less than 100 years old, so everything seemed new uh, in that city. It was a, a major commerce center. It was in uh, the isthmus that was separating two major sea routes, and it was about three miles in between these two seas. So a lot of trade and commerce was happening. Money mattered. And it was also cosmopolitan because all these people were coming from everywhere. Uh, it was a, a place of great competition. Uh, in fact, the Olympic Games are actually modeled after the Isthmus Games that took place here in Corinth. All right, so you remember commerce, cosmopolitan, uh, competition, uh, and then carnal. All right, extremely carnal in that uh, what was worshipped was Aphrodite was the, the main goddess among many gods, which was the goddess of love. Uh, and so how you looked, goddess of beauty, mattered. Think Beverly Hills, think L.A., where you, you don't go out on the streets unless you have spent a lot of money to make yourself look good, okay? And so this is kind of the, the situation they're in. And so uh, when Paul writes the, the letter of Romans, he's writing it from Corinth. Uh, he also writes First and Second Thessalonians uh, from Corinth, as well as possibly uh, the book of Philippians. 
Uh, and so a lot of ha- is happening. But you remember in Romans chapter 1 where he starts listing out uh, the, the litany of sins that are in their day and age, uh, especially the sexually immoral sins? Well, it could very well be that he can see out the window and see it happening. I remember uh, probably about uh, 14 years ago, 14, 15 years ago, uh, we had a trip to New Orleans. Uh, and so I don't know what it is, why it happened, but for whatever reasons, when we got off the airplane, uh, we were to meet my parents who were there. And for whatever reasons, on a late Saturday night, about 10, 30, 11 p.m., uh, Julie and I and, and Stroller with little baby Molly and my parents walked down the streets, the bourbon streets, 10, 30, 11 at night. That was crazy. It was just, I remember drunk people coming up uh, to the baby and say, oh, what a cute baby. And, you know, little girls trying to give beads to the baby. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> it's just this scene. Uh, if you can think of Mardi Gras, New Orleans, or uh, something like that, this is Corinth. All right, so to Corintherize was a word used in that daytime for well over hundreds of years to uh, allude to someone who is immoral. A prostitute is a, a Corinthian woman. It was not a compliment in any stretch. Uh, and so that's the city that Paul is in, and that's where he spends this time of making disciples. Uh, and so interesting how he uh, comes across people. Uh, he goes to Corinth, verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla. They were basically kicked out of Rome because Claudius sent a decree out because of the rioting take place in the Jews about one named Christus. All right, many scholars believe this is about Christ and the rioting that take place. And so evidently Aquila and Priscilla were maybe some of the leaders in that. And so they're kicked out of Rome. One day they'll go back uh, to Rome. Uh, and so Paul comes across them and spends time with them, and I would say investing in them. Uh, And why do I say that? Well, the reason I say that Paul spent time investing in Aquila and Priscilla, uh, this couple, was because 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul gives instructions to Timothy how to do ministry. And part of that instruction was to find faithful men who will be able to teach others also and pour into them okay and so that's essentially what paul is doing right here with aquila and priscilla as he is working here's something that you find about being a disciple what makes a disciple a disciple well at the essence is they follow jesus christ they trust in jesus christ and they follow the purposes that jesus laid out so what is the purpose that Luke tells us uh, for believers. Well, he tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You shall be witnesses of me to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. A disciple must have that as its purpose to be a disciple. And I would argue a Christian is not a Christian unless they are a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's just a label. You understand that, right? We have this idea that a Christian can be a Christian because they went to church. They're a Christian because they grew up in church. They're a Christian, it used to be because they were in America. Uh, that in, uh, is an Americanized version of being a Christian, is a cultural Christianity uh, that was advantageous to have that label. It's no longer advantageous to be a Christian in our society anymore. So we drop those people saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. They were not a Christian because they never followed Jesus Christ. You have to have the purposes of jesus and i would argue the main purpose 
It's Matthew 28, or Matthew chapter, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you're to be a witness of me. If that's not your purpose for your life, then we are not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Very simple. Hard, but very simple. And so, if that's true, how do you view other people? As Paul is going along, he starts seeing people, and it's interesting how he treats them and what he does with them. Do you know that you tell more about yourself by how you view people? You share more about your God by how you view others. All right. So I'm going to just present to you that a disciple sees people as either disciples in which to encourage them to witness. All right. I just, you either see them as already a disciple, and so you're encouraging them to witness, to do the purposes that Jesus calls us to do, or you see people as potential disciples to whom we proclaim Christ. There's, either really, there's only really two camps. When we meet any person, we either see them as they are a disciple in which are they sharing the gospel? Are they making disciples? Or do they not yet know Christ? Let me proclaim Christ to them. How you view people reveals how you live, how you worship, who is your God. For instance, I remember in high school and in college, uh, I, it hit me as I was in college, I spent all my life growing up uh, from middle school to high school, and I either viewed people as someone that contributed to my coolness or took away from it. All right, we laugh, but ask yourself, did you do the same thing? I would quickly size up someone and say, okay, they're cool enough, or no, they're not. And my actions was determined by how I judged them. Did they contribute to my cool factor? So what was my God? Coolness. All right. So the, the, the more formal way of, of saying that is my honor. All right. My honor. We just have, we don't use that. We, you know, word, we don't use words like that in high school and college. Or, all right. We don't use the word cool anymore. I don't know what they use, actually, but uh, that's what I used. But it was my honor. If you made my honor better, then I'm going to hang out with you. If you didn't, then no. When I started working in a church and worked as, uh, uh, in college ministry, my job was administration in college. You know how I saw people? Resources resources you come in you contribute all right let's talk okay you come in you take away man how can i diminish your influence all right so what was my god at that time it was ministry just this is how i judged people you see you reveal a lot more about what you worship by how you uh, view others. So here's the great challenge for us as, uh, as parents. I think one of the things that when you have kids, it reveals your gods. Because I can see my kids as, you disrupt my comfort. You disrupt my comfort. What, do you, what irritates you about people? Might tell you a little bit about how you view them. What irritates you about people? 
might reveal how you view them, which in turn reveals what might be your God. So we have an animal, a dog, and uh, so at, at first we thought, okay, we want a dog. We view this dog because he contributes to the family life. But if we start going into, let's have a clean house, <laughs> does the dog contribute? No, 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 no. The dog is a problem, all right? And so the, the dog quicks, quickly gets viewed because we see something as more important than what this dog may contribute. And so that's just kind of, you see what I'm talking about? What does a disciple do? A disciple views people in light of the Great Commission. Why? Because it is the purpose through which God has called us to live this earth. And so we see people as either a disciple in which I would encourage them for the purpose of which Jesus called them to do, to make disciples. Or I see them as this person can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, is that calloused? Is that kind of like, well, you're still seeing them as projects? It is. It is a callous view, and I'm just seeing them as projects. If I don't believe that the greatest good that any person could ever have is to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and the greatest beauty is to know the glory of God. If I don't believe that, then I'm just using people. But if I believe that God is the greatest thing that could come into their life, that is the answer for all their hopes and dreams, then it is loving them and loving God. So I just want to ask you this question, how do you see people? As, as he sees Aquila and Priscilla, he sees them and says, you know, let me encourage you in your walk. How do I know that they're encouraged in the walk? Because we see uh, what they do uh, in, uh, as we look in verse 26. How do you know when you're making disciples? When they start making disciples. That's it. How do you know when you are making disciples for Christ when the person you're working with starts making disciples for Christ? So you see that in verse 26, they hear this man named Apollos, but he's not quite right in everything they say. And so they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They start making disciples themselves. For those of you who have children, our grandchildren, ask yourself, do you see them as disciples? Disciples in which to encourage them to share the gospel? Or do you see them as potential people who can know the greatest thing in the world? I'm going to tell you as parents, it is just a hypocritical thing. If we want the best for a child and we present to them education and sports and money, the best of everything, and yet we don't give them God... Something is wrong in our heart and mind. It kills me when parents say, well, you know, I just want them to make that choice. You don't give them a choice when it comes to school. Why? Because you know what's best for them. You present these things. You disciple them. And so this is part of what we do because we have been redeemed. We've been bought by Jesus Christ. And so we go to verse 3. A disciple... And this is what they get, he gets connected with them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. But you know, Paul's never really known as the tent maker, is he? 
That's not why we're reading about him, because he's a tent maker. He, he just did tent making so that he could do the purpose of which Christ called him to do. You see, a disciple sees work as a platform to make disciples. A disciple sees work as a platform to make disciples. Why? Because they realize that there is something worth living for more than money. They see that there's something worth living for more than a comfortable lifestyle, more than a, a, a better lifestyle, that there is something in which their life is more directed toward that is worth more. And so they keep the priorities in line. What is work for? It is the purpose of which God has saved you. He has saved you to be a witness to declare to others what Jesus has done. So how do we do this? Well, for one good reason why we do it is because you're with these people the most, right? I, we had, um, I think, I was just talking to the office, and, and Tracy, uh, the office uh, administrator and an assistant there, uh, was just made a statement. It was like, well, you know, we, we probably spend more time together than I do with our family. And it kind of hit me. I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. But isn't that true for most everybody in their work? That you spend the most of the time not necessarily with your family, but with your co-workers? And so how is it that we can say, yeah, let's worship God here, but now I'm not going to worship God in my work. I'm not going to try to make disciples in my work. That's the most of your life. How does that not happen? To see your co-workers as potential disciplers, all right, as potential disciplers, for Christ. Not just are they a Christian, but are they a discipler? Are they making disciples for the kingdom? So there's a couple ways you can do that. One, look at your co-workers. He's looking with Aquila and Priscilla. He's working with them. And the other thing is use those resources that come to enable the work. All right. So how, how does that happen? Well, why is he tent making? He's getting there. He comes to Corinth all by himself. He, he left the Thessalonica area and went to Athens, you know, under duress a little bit, and then he goes from Athens to Corinth. He's all by himself, and he goes in not really knowing anybody, and he leaves with churches there. He has no way of having money, and so he uses his trade, uses his skills so that he can share the gospel and get some partnership with them to do that. Interesting, as you keep reading, Notice in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Philippi, you remember Philippi, that the earthquake happened in jail there? When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. I would argue with you that it could very well be that with the arrival of Silas and Timothy, something happened that allowed him to be fully occupied with the word. What happened? Well, we get some clues. Remember, he writes uh, the letter of Corinthians later on, referring to this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 and 9 says this. He says, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. What is Paul saying happened? 
he says that when this when Silas and Timothy came, they didn't just come, they brought money from Philippi. So that allowed him to work fully and proclaim the word. And writing to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, remember verse 13? You know that one, right? Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. What's he talking about? Is he talking about running a, a 10 miler? 15, 20, 100 miles? He's talking about the fact that he lived on nothing in Corinth. And then he was able to live on something later on. And he said, whether I abound or whether I have little, I have learned the secret to be content, which is that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. You know why we don't know the truth of that? I'm going to speak here painfully. What do we do when money's tight? A credit card comes in handy, doesn't it? We can do all things through MasterCard. We read Philippians 4.13, it's speaking specifically about contentment, and this is something that speaks to us. I think we've learned little about trusting God because we always have a credit card. Here's Paul speaking, hey, God provided for me in this time. And so he kept on reading. He says in Philippians 4, verse 14, after 13, yeah, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. No, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have reached, received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Aphrodite the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Listen, here's the thing. This all comes to this one point, is that disciples see work as a platform to make disciples. Either through the relationships that we build at work or through the income that God blesses with it, that it is there for the furtherance of God's kingdom. I would just challenge you for those of you who have international partnerships in your work. Is there any way whatsoever that missionaries can be sent through your work? Start praying that way. Start thinking. Start praying, God, can you make our work so that it expands? Not so that I can have a comfortable lifestyle, but that your purposes can be prevailed through our business. That, I tell you what, when you start working in your job for eternal purposes, talk about motivation, then, oh, I just want to be better than someone else. And I view every person as someone that either makes my job better or not, or our company better or not. Then company becomes your God. So we see what disciples do because, honestly, they just see God as greater. The mission is greater than the next dollar. So interesting to see how Paul views Priscilla and Aquila. Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and 4, he writes about them. Priscilla and Aquila have moved to Ephesus, then now moved back to Rome. And so he writes in the letter to Romans, greet Priscilla, or Priscilla, which is the formal name, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. How did they risk their life? How did they put their own neck on the line? They simply supported Paul, a Christian, 
a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, we have been blessed to live in a country where our country has honored the church. How do I say that? We don't pay property taxes. Right? You all know that, right? Whole 501c3 bit. Our country has recognized that. I expect fully, as we continue to say, same sex is a sin, and thus become opposed to the, the view of the age, that we will not be regarded as a contributing helpful factor to our society. And the next line, easily, is going to be property taxes removed. And churches will start paying taxes on their property and everything else. Now, all of a sudden, those $5 billion building projects don't look so good. So, we're going to live in a day, easily, where a country says, no, we don't recognize you as helpful. We don't honor your work. When it comes time to say, you're a Christian, and you look not with favoritism, but with scorn. You're one of those bigots, are you? Listen, to just be alongside and help and bear the name of Christ. Be prepared in your lifetime. In your lifetime, not just my lifetime, in your lifetime, be prepared for the day and time when it is not at all looked at favoritism when you say you're a Christian and you looked with scorn. In that society, to identify with Christians, demands sacrifice. If we don't sacrifice and worship of our Lord now, we will not worship and sacrifice then at that time. And so here that's what Aquila and Priscilla are doing and Paul is recognizing that. And so with this help, verse 4, they start to mobilize and ministry. And we have, of course, we looked at last week being called in uh, in the court. So let's go down to verse 18, 19. Paul stayed many days longer in this area in Corinth. And took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria, and with them Priscilla and Quilla. For whatever reasons, they went together. And then at Syncre, this is an interesting tidbit. He cut his hair, for he was under a vow. There's a lot of questions about that that really don't have answers. But it was most likely a Nazarite vow, uh, which is found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1 through 21. If you want to read more about that, you can see that in Numbers 6. Uh, and part of that was not cutting your hair. As, a, as part of your vow to God. I think it's just interesting that whatever the reasons were, Paul kept some of his Jewishness of this is how I worship and being disciplined before God and giving something. And so one of the things that would often do is when they cut their hair, they present that hair as part of their sacrifice to God. Uh, it's funny because we just don't live in a day and time where we present materials as part of our sacrifice to God because we view that as Old Testament. You know, they, they gave the animals. They gave uh, the lambs. And, and we don't have to offer up our materials anymore because Jesus has sacrificed for us. But listen, is that really true? Or are we just trying to rationalize our way out so that we don't have to give thanksgiving offerings of materials? I just want to challenge you. If God has been especially good to you, maybe the right response is to offer up a sacrifice of praise that does involve your materials. To recognize that God is God over all things and he has been so good to me. But here's how we view it. Here's here's Paul. He's not doing this to get saved. 
All right? He's not doing this to get right with God. He's not doing this to increase his standing before God. Why is he doing this? For the New Testament, discipline becomes part of the sacrifice of worship. Discipline, vows we take, offerings of, 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 of giving to God, is offering of worship to the Lord. Do you understand that having a disciplined life as a disciple of Jesus is part of your worship? You know what we use discipline for nowadays? Self-worship. Go to any gym. Look at the mirrors. Amazing to watch the mirrors. Because everybody's looking in the mirrors. Why are they working out? Well, I work out, all right? So it's not necessarily true for everybody. But sometimes a lot of it is how I look, isn't it? Discipline is not how I look, but is to offer up to God, you are worthy. You are worthy. You remember what the fruit of the Spirit is? According to Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. This ability to be disciplined operates out of relationship with God, out of the Holy Spirit and His power, and it is something we give to God. You see, grace is not opposed to effort. Sometimes we, well, I'm saved by grace. Yes, but grace is not opposed to effort. Grace compels us to effort. So grace offers up, our discipline offers up, uh, disciple offers up discipline as worship. And we've got to keep on going. We have this man named Apollos. He is eloquent. He's fervent in spirit. He's competent in the scriptures. But he just missed a few things. He didn't know the baptism of Jesus, specifically the role of the Holy Spirit in his life because of Jesus. He's going right the right way but missed a few things. I love the fact that this eloquent, fervent man who knew a lot about scriptures was willing to be set aside by this couple and said, let me tell you a few things. And he listened and he learned. There is a humility about this man named Apollos. God used him mightily in Corinth. In fact, he was one who came after Paul and and helped that church grow. But as we read this, What if he has said, I don't believe you, this is the way I've always known, this is the right way, and held on to his dogma? I want to just present this something, I want you to listen careful. A disciple is more devoted to Jesus than to a dogma. Now I have to be very careful with that. Because all that we know about Jesus comes from the Word of God. We can't jettison the Word of God, It's, it's how we know. But listen... Being a Christian, a disciple, at the heart of it is a relationship with Jesus. If it's more about holding on to a certain set of beliefs than a relationship with Jesus, then we have abused the Christian faith. You see, here this man was. He knew some things about Jesus. He, he spoke, notice what he says here, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he did not know everything, and he was willing to listen so that he could walk better with Jesus. 
Listen, when it is about a relationship with, with Jesus, then your life becomes sweeter as time goes on. I've seen too many that have held on to dogma that instead of being sweet, they become mean. Jesus, when it's about a relationship, impacts our attitude and gives us a flexibility to listen and to learn like Apollos seemed to have, like Aquila and Priscilla seemed to have. Dogma is important, but Jesus is at the heart. And if you hold on to the dogma and forget about the relationship with the Jesus, then dogma's lost its purpose. If you know the Word of God, but you don't pray, you've lost it. If we don't talk to Jesus and hear from him, then dogma has become more important than a relationship. I long for, I wish for our children and our teenagers and our adults that as they come to this church, that it's to be a greenhouse for the Great Commission, which means at the heart of it must be a relationship with Jesus. Don't settle in your disciples for them just knowing the right stuff. Don't settle for them just to know how to read the Bible, but look for, is there a growing relationship with Jesus? That's what we're looking for. That's what you want in your heart and life. And we can't pass that on until we have it in our life. How did Aquila Priscilla get it? It was built up by Paul. How did Paulus get it? It was built up by Aquila and Priscilla. It's amazing. Paulus came on and fertilized the same places that Paul went. Chances are, when you do what God's called you to do and disciple others who will disciple others, it will come back to benefit you. It's amazing how that happens. But it all happens because our purposes is God's purposes. So let me ask you this question As we look at what disciples do, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him as your purpose? Do you know him as your purpose? That's part of how he saves us. He saved us from worthless purposes and gave us a purpose that's eternal. I don't know if you can know him as your Savior and not know him as your purpose. Is he your purpose? Is it how you view others? Is it how you view your work? Is it the heart of what you do? Is it how you view dogma itself? Is it how you view discipline? That it's about him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for as this examples of these little these little glimpses of people of Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, Gaius, others, Lord, that just have these little glimpses, and all we have is this little snapshot, but Lord, all what it reveals, how they lived their life, how an empire was changed by a group of people who saw you and your son as the purpose for which they lived. It colored how they view people. 
not viewing through ethnicity, not through according to the flesh, but saw them by the lens of your love. Father, that they saw work as just platforms for which they were able to gain access into the lives of people to share the gospel with them, by which they were able to get means through which to further your kingdom. Father, that they could see discipline. It's not that which made them better, but that which they could worship you with. 